Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Judging from the fact that you both completely forgot this existed, I'm going to say probably no. not. What? No. Don't read into Unless that. Unless Phoebe's gaslighting skills have gotten next level. And she does <laughs> gaslight me when I'm like, <laughs> talking about these books. Oh, yeah. I've heard it. When did I do that? I've never done that in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Emily, you're crazy. Like, what? <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spinoffs. I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And today we are talking about Tyrant's Tomb with a special guest. Jerry, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes! Thank you so much for having me. I am the co-host of the Muses of Mythology podcast. It's another Percy Jackson podcast. But we talk about how the ancient myths have remained part of our modern pop culture through the lens of obviously Rick Riordan's Percy Jackson and the Olympians books. I co-host it with my brother DJ. He is not here today. He couldn't handle this level of of goodness. (laughs) He also works. (laughs) But I'm here to play ball. Let's go. Mm. Amazing. So this was your first time reading The Tyrant's Tomb, Emily. It was. Do you have initial thoughts to share? I enjoyed it a lot. I liked many elements of it. It felt kind of like he Rick was sort of getting his do-over moment with like Frank's art especially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I enjoyed like it felt more like Rick was tying up a lot of loose ends than it was like its own narrative. That being said, that does kind of tie into what I felt like the theme of this book was. So I'm not like mad about it, but I'm also like I, we, we've been talking about these book series. We've been talking about Trials of Apollo specifically, as like each of them is a one of the five acts in a Percy Jackson book. And this definitely feels like the sort of like Dark Knight of the Soul. Like oh, like the crazy things just happened. Now we all need to like regroup and figure our lives out and like move on before we can get into the finale. Mm-hmm. So it's like that's like the whole book is what it feels like. And even though there's like a big battle at the end of it. 
it still feels like that was like the purpose of this book. And that battle also sort of again ties up a lot of loose ends, clears the air. That's a good diagnosis of it. I had a different thought about what it was supposed to be, but I like yours more because mine didn't apply to every Percy Jackson book where I think that actually does. Yeah, like I'm trying to think like what's a really great, what's a, what's a book where that's like has a very defined th- this section? I would say like, I feel like Battle of the Labyrinth kind of has yeah. that. When Percy mm-hmm. gets back from um, Calypso's island and like sees his own funeral and then like they go and yes. they find Rachel yes. and then they head back into the labyrinth. Yeah, it's very like a quiet beat. Yes. And then at the end of that section, I would say is the Kronos moment, like when Kronos comes back. Mm. So that is sort of mm-hmm. the final battle at the end of mm. that part of the book. And it does sort of have like, we've got a cataclysmic battle at the end of Battle of the Labyrinth. We've got a cataclysmic battle at the end of this book where there's actual named dead people. Oh my God. I got so weepy. <laughs> I got, I've read it before and I got so weepy. Mm. Dakota got me this time. Dakota! I was so sad. Jacob. It was Jacob for me that I actually started like, oh, oh no. Jacob. I'm not even friends with Jacob. <laughs> oh, no. Also, my last reaction to this book was this is the first time Rick's actually pulled one on me where he's like, a mysterious god. Ooh. And I'm sitting here. I'm like going through my Rolodex. And I'm like, who the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> Like, this is the first time I'm like, what the fuck? And then, of course, it's a fucking Ptolemaic one. I'm like, ugh. You can't be expected. That's not, that's not your, your field. Okay, let's get into it. Um, I cannot believe the way that this book starts with Apollo and Meg getting off the plane and having to drive Jason's body to Camp Jupiter and then getting attacked. In a hearse. In a hearse and then getting attacked by monsters that are trying to eat it like eat his body (laughs) yeah this 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 is this part though is the reason why i had a very easy time figuring out the theme of this book yeah (laughs) um for me personally there's a lot here and this is also why i think it feels like sort of that transitional period and the lull between the like big thing that happens at the end of act two i guess act three in the five act structure and like the final climactic battle is because this whole book is basically a funeral. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It starts with the procession, which in a Rome, in the Roman tradition for funerals would always have a funeral procession. And you'd be uh, basically bringing the person's body, kind of celebrating them as you go, and then bringing them back to where you're going to actually lay them to rest. So we're doing the procession, but I think another interesting piece of this book is also all of the ways a lot of these rituals and a lot of um, the themes here are sort of corrupted. So so the ghoul showing up to eat his body is what I'm mm-hmm. saying uh, is a good it's a good start to that. Mm. Are you saying that doesn't happen in in typical Roman funerals? <laughs> um not that I'm aware of, but you never know. I think it's interesting that they talk about they have Jason's coffin and they're trying to get it to New Rome. But Apollo never lets himself think about what is inside the coffin. Like the fact that they are transporting Jason's body is something that is like so kept at bay and like this like barrier to grief mm-hmm. which is still so fresh and it's not until like the ghoul literally is like oh I'm gonna I prefer fresh but I'll eat him and Apollo has a line where he's like I don't know what he means I refuse to understand but yeah. Meg screams in rage but even that which is like horrifying I noticed the haiku for the start of the chapter is very comedic where it's the it's the what don't eat that dead dude that's my dead dude dude it, it feels like an, a very intentional choice to try to... You mentioned before we started recording that this one isn't as 
funny. And I agree because it's like coming off the heels of a very like, we don't kill main characters in this book series. Like what? Rick, no, they all get to survive no matter what. And then, oh, we just watched Jason die pretty gruesomely pretty recently if you're reading these in back to back. So it's like it feels like just trying to like not live in that space of like a heavy grief so you can continue moving forward and telling the story without it weighing on your readers so much. And it's almost weird, but not in a bad way. I can't figure out what I think because it's obviously Meg is living in that space where Apollo is not. Mm. Mm. It's almost like the haikus haven't made the tone shift with him because Mm. it's like Mm. in the, the books, there's been a total status quo shift after Jason dying because like in this book there is a lot of death like from the very beginning it's like we just experienced massive amounts of death here at Camp Jupiter and like it just happens throughout the book it's just we live in this this new world now while the the haikus are still like the way that they were from the very beginning they're like kind of funny little jokes that you get at the beginning of each chapter like it just it hasn't made the jump with us yet um so there's like Mm. a little bit of a like a dissonance there yeah with the haikus being obviously from Apollo, and Apollo is directly telling the story to us, the readers, if it's not Rick writing it. It's Apollo feels like he's telling the story to us as it happened or very recently. Would we say the haikus were written at the same time or mayhaps later? This is a good question. The The one for the chapter where Frank dies, quote unquote, is like... Something that I I actually noticed it this time. Usually I kind of skim over the haiku. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But this one I actually noticed because it was like, not again. Like, please no, not again. And I was like, yeah, it just is definitely more like in the moment. So I, that's that's a good question. <laughs> Whether they just kind of are like what's flowing from Apollo's mind at the moment in like that part of the story or if they're like in retrospect. The dead dude one definitely feels like a thing you would uh, you would make a joke light of like ah this was like pretty traumatic it's fine though no it's like but it was all fine in the end so (laughs) it was actually kind of funny right but i think not again not again does feel more like it's as it's happening so i have another thing about apollo not acknowledging well the reality of the coffin like there are two times when he's like helping carry the coffin and it's he's struggling a lot and he sees meg is just like not complaining not at all and he thinks like yeah probably just to make me look bad okay meg and then when he's struggling again it's just him and don the fawn and he's like i refuse to complain and break before the fawn does which are both very funny moments but it's like well meg's not struggling because she's hyper aware that she is doing this for jason and jason's body is in this coffin and she will not let herself complain about the struggle of carrying her companion like this so it's like I don't think it's supposed to be read as like Apollo being flippant or not feeling about it. I think it is meant to like just kind of a dissonance of like Apollo's not really in the space with the crisis to process the grief of the moment. And he's just going forward, whereas Meg is always living in the grief of the moment. Mm. Yeah, I do think a lot of this book is Apollo going through that, like the processing. So I think that makes sense to me that that's where he's starting here. Like he can't even acknowledge that it's happened and I think because part of that is also it's really tied to his guilt because I think this is where in this book we're really seeing the guilt really affect him Mm -hmm. because I think Jason's death was not only a tone shift but like a huge shift for Apollo in that like he caused an actually like really really bad thing with really bad permanent consequences or at least he feels responsible for causing it and so now he's he's having to reckon with that and now he's like ready to reckon with that to a point of almost overcorrection, I would feel, where now Apollo will is 
viewing himself as responsible for all bad things. Every bad thing that has happened or could happen or maybe happen to anybody at all who he's met, <laughs> no matter what. And I think we see Meg is going through the same thing. And their two shared plot lines and their characters, the trauma, are becoming more and more apparent mm. and obvious in this book. Yeah. Because we talked a bit about Meg's feeling of guilt over things that just weren't her fault. And so they've almost had like kind of the opposite journey here of like Meg starting to understand that all these things weren't her fault while Apollo is realizing that a lot of things actually were his fault. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's interesting. At one point, Apollo is like remembering that like Zeus's your fault, your punishment thing, which is like one of the first things, the line of the opening of Hidden Oracle and has taken that and projected it onto everything which is i think meg is coming from that with nero telling her oh it's your fault your father died because you weren't good enough don't worry i'll protect you and so she's like yeah like you said phoebe she's coming over that and apollo is falling into that mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they have very similar backgrounds and i think this book is doing a lot to actively outright call zeus abusive yeah as nero and yeah. make those very very strong parallels he used that actual word which really surprised me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the full quote here that happens this is jumping ahead to when lupa leads apollo into jupiter's temple apollo comes in and sees the statue of zeus and says seeing him tower above me lightning bolt raised i had to fight the urge to cower and plead i knew it was only a statue but if you've ever been traumatized by someone you'll understand it doesn't take much to trigger those old fears, a look, a sound, a familiar situation, or a 50-foot-tall golden statue of your abuser that does the trick. Explicitly calling Zeus his abuser, and then this image, it just, it was reminiscent to me of, like, Gabe with his hand raised when Sally flinches, mm. and of, like, Ares with his hand raised when Clarice flinches in the second book, and it just, it was that mm -hmm. same, like, you know, lightning bolt raised and Apollo flinching back. It really tied that whole, you know, we've been talking a lot about the theme of like the abusive parenting that has been throughout all, all um, three series. But this felt like the full acknowledgement of that as a theme. Yeah. And you can't just give your mom a head of Medusa to take care of this problem. <laughs> but it's also it's also interesting that like this whole like outlining it, saying Zeus is his abuser openly comes not long after they first get there and Meg is unsettled being in a Roman space again. Mm -hmm. And Apollo is like, oh yeah, she was raised in an evil emperor's palace with all this Roman stuff. Like this is probably, this is triggering for her. Yeah. And then just doubling down on it. It's good. I mean, it's bad. It's bad that it, it, like in plot that it happens in fiction to these characters. But I, I like seeing these themes be addressed in a proper, not joke, not just, we write off the fact that Ares sucks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just, no, 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 don't worry about that. That didn't happen. Don't think about that again. <laughs> yeah. This also made me think about in the first book when we've got like a 50 foot gold statue of, of your abuser. That's like also the sort of Nero statue we got mm -hmm. like that moment we had at the beginning of the first book. So it's a nice kind of like thing hammering into place the Apollo and Meg connection. To backtrack a little just to explain what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. Meg and Apollo make it to camp um, with Jason's body where they have to then tell everyone that Jason is dead. And it seems like Apollo sings for hours telling everyone his story. 
And this was the part that I was hoping would be really relevant to when, for context, when we read The Burning Maze, I was crying trying to explain it. And Emily was like, you want me to make it worse? And quoted <laughs> Patroclus' death scene from the Iliad at me. <laughs> she actually told me about this on the episode of Muses. She was just on about the Iliad. When yeah. I was like, oh, here's a, a thing I had a parallel. Do you think, as an expert on this, do you think that is like intentional? And she's like, yes, I do. And let me tell you how I made my co-host cry when we talked about it. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, I couldn't make my co-host cry and I tried <laughs> but I was really hoping that this song would have parallels in it to those lines but I, I didn't catch them. it's interesting though because we've talked a lot about the Iliad especially with like Luke and all of this references to the war and that in our uh, all of our episodes about the first season but especially mm-hmm. our last Olympian episode this book I feel like actually draws on one of the other big themes of the Iliad that we didn't really talk about which was the idea of burial and like bodies and consecration and like Mm -hmm. how big of a deal that was and like why like that sort of aspect of like honoring the dead and like paying homage to those who have fallen because that is also like sort of the other side of a lot of what's going on with Achilles like it's a lot of him trying to earn his fame his glory and like having all this anger and trying to let go but another huge piece of that and what is sort of a symbol of that is how we're honoring the dead in terms of like at the body of Hector, the body of Patroclus, etc. And there's a huge point of Achilles just like not letting people go, both Patroclus and Hector. When culturally for the ancient Greeks and Romans, and I think even it's even mentioned in this book for the Romans, there's this very strong belief that until you are laid to rest, your spirit is not at peace, you cannot cross into the underworld. And the Romans especially had a pretty strong belief that if you didn't do that, then you would get haunted. Because that'd be something that's tying in directly to like what, like with the ghouls and Tarkin and what has happened to the Fallen Legion. Could we assume that is an intentional? Oh, yeah. This whole thing has started with the importance of like bringing Jason Grace's body to rest. And then you have all of these legionnaires who are not being able to be laid to rest. Yes, Mm -hmm. 100%. And this is where Asola comes in a little bit because one of the things he's most famous for is he had a major rival named Gaius Marius. Uh, Basically, Sulla was so adamant about like just destroying everything Gaius Marius ever built that he actually had his body dug up to throw his bones in the river. (laughs) So that they like in the dead of night so that he would never be at peace. Like it's that level of like importance for Romans. That's so shady. That's such shady business. Sulla is the shadiest person to ever live. I'm convinced, which is why I love him. Like he's not a good person. He's just fascinating. But there's like a whole thing where not getting buried was considered like a crazy punishment also in mm-hmm. ancient times. Um, like getting thrown into the Tiber, like that was that was what, how would they, they would like execute people that way by throwing them like in a sack in the Tiber for the very reason that they would not be buried and honored. This is all very helpful historical context. And now I'm like putting it all together because in my head I was like, oh, this is all actually tied to the immortality theme because now we see like all of these Romans and also like the Sybil and Tarquin and like also kind of Apollo who's like physically crumbling throughout the book. And it's just all of these people Mm -hmm. who are like physically decaying and rotting who like just the idea of like living past your time. And that being like physically unnatural. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was where I connected to the this kind of imagery. I wasn't even thinking about what I knew about Greek and Roman burial rites. Yeah, like it's about burials, but to me it's also about desecration. That's what I was kind of trying to say earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also thought his like stab wound from, because he gets uh, part of the encounter as they're getting to New Rome with these uh, urinomoi. 
is if they scratch you, you get infected, basically, and you kind of turn into a ghoul if you don't get proper treatment. And Apollo does get scratched. And he's got this, like, wound that refuses to heal that's, like, pulling him down to death's door. And that actually reminded me of Jason in Blood of Olympus also. Oh, yeah! So I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, we're getting a parallel to that. But also, like, we talked about it with Jason. It was like he was stuck in this period of, like... It was like the wound was keeping him stuck in a place where he didn't know who he was or how he fit in. And, like, all, it was basically like a manifestation of all of this uncertainty of his. And I feel like that, looking at it like that for Apollo is also really interesting because it's, like, physically draining him, like, his whole... Like, it's draining his life away. It's turning him into, you know a desecrated corpse essentially like it's just pulling away all of his life all of the things he's worked for and turning him into a servant of a tyrant and like how it's potentially also keeping him stuck where if he's not moving on he's gonna just waste away mm-hmm. so that need to keep moving forward through your situation you can't just stay there yeah like fighting through the pain basically and i, I feel like it's also good because you know, it does take, like, it depends on who you are and what it, what, what it is, but it does take people a long time to process this kind of thing, even if you think you're processing it at the time, I feel like. Like, he's sitting here and he's, like, acknowledging what happened, but in a way where it's definitely, like, not as deep as it should be. And I think this whole book, which is why I'm, like, saying it's, like, basically an extended funeral, is, like, him really, ca- like, all of the feelings really catching up with what's going on and, like, finally kind of getting the catharsis. Yeah, I found... I mean, we'll probably get into it later on, but um, I found Apollo's relationship to his own death kind of fascinating in this book, just because yeah. like, he mm-hmm. had he had progressed so far with it since the Dark Prophecy was, I think, the last time we like really dealt with it. He's gotten to the point where he he multiple times throughout this book is just like willing to die for the people around him, and even while he's thinking about that wound in his belly, is like obviously I don't want to die, but he's not having an existential crisis over it the way that yeah. he would be. In the earlier books. Yeah, I remembered that part because I read it before, but just once. And I was like, that's so useless because, like, we know he's not going to be a zombie. Like, we know there's another book. Like, why did we waste our time with this, like, fake threat and then actually reading it again? I'm like, oh, no, I think this is a really interesting device for, like, as you said, Emily, the whole big desecration of body and the the, the death and the funeral uh, theme of it, but also just demonstrating Apollo and his growth of, like, not fearing death like he did. Mm Mm-hmm as it being like, listen, if I can get healed, I don't have to be a zombie and that sounds really good. And rather than if I can get healed, I will still be able to live and then maybe be a god again. Like it's this Mm -hmm. priority shift. Yeah, that's a huge shift in this book. I think there's even a line at one point where he says that like he doesn't even know if he still is really that big on becoming a god at the end of all of this. Mm -hmm. Like that's just not really a priority to him anymore. Yeah, I read the first two books bought Burning Maze when it came out and then just didn't read it like literally it wasn't until they were all out and I'd started the podcast with my brother and he finally read them all and was wanting to talk to me so badly about them that I finally picked him up and I dropped them because I was so scared that if at the end Apollo becomes a god he would just revert to being terrible again and then when you get to this point of the book where it's like oh we're finally dealing with like what does home mean for these characters and where is that? Because like Jason coming home, which say tangent, thought that was weird that this is like, ah, oh, Jason's home. And I'm like, what about the Greek thing? It yep. doesn't matter. I don't, I, I can't <laughs> talk about that right now. But the, the idea of like home and the questioning of like Lupa telling Apollo, you need to rejoin your true pack. And the air of Dodona asking Apollo, do you really want to go back to Olympus actually? Mm-hmm. I think it's cool that that happens in this book because I think it sets up a lot more of an interesting question of 
where the characters are going to end in the final book mm. and giving it a lot of time to like ruminate on that and think about what home and responsibility I think means. Mm. So we get the prop. We haven't really been talking about what happens in this book. That being said, not much happens in this book. They're just kind of it's vibing around. It's a lot of around. nothing for a long time. <laughs> just kind of like vibing around Camp Jupiter for a while. Well, I mean, kind of. Meg is vibing around Camp Jupiter. Apollo is passing out, waking up at the coffee shop. Yep. Maybe going to the fields of Mars. Yeah. Going to a Senate meeting. Right. Passing out. Meg's is having a really fun camp experience. Meg's I got think. a subplot. She's 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 like getting super into like Lavinia. She's she's lo- she's loving the unicorn. She's having I'm a good time. So- I'm so happy for Megs to have this came at the top, came to camp anxious and being surrounded by the Roma stuff again and getting all of that culture recontextualized yeah. as something that can be warm and positive and supportive for her. Yeah. I think she's really getting to be a kid in this book a little bit, which is yes. really nice. She deserves yeah. it. I remember when this book came out, I was really hoping for like a really long look at Camp Jupiter and the culture there and the, just the mm-hmm. way that things work and getting more stories about it and everything. And I feel like Meg is getting all of the information that I want and I'm <laughs> yeah. Apollo is sleeping through all of it. And so I'm missing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is honestly very on brand for both of them. Meg is just getting everything and not telling you anything. And then Apollo is <laughs> just like, what happened? What's going on? But it's also one of Rick Ryden's like favorite writing devices when you have a deadline that you got to figure out how to get to it in a timely manner, but still have enough time where it feels possible to do all the things that you need to set out to do. Characters will just go unconscious for a little while. It's fine. Yeah. So anyway, um, we get a prophecy from Ella and what she's doing is she's tattooing the books of the command Sybil onto Tyson's whole everything, actually. Basically, this ancient Sybil had written down all of these different books um, that were at one point housed in ancient Rome um, in a temple that burned down. So they were thought to have been lost to history. Although that being said, they were sort of recorded in other places. So there was an effort made to kind of try and reconstruct them and bring them all back. But they've kind of all been lost to history. They get lines from the prophecy that kind of confirm that they need to go down to find Tarquin's tomb, which is the tomb of Tarquinius Superbus, the last king of Rome who is also the reason why he was the last king, uh, because he was such a tyrant notoriously in history that the Romans overthrew him and established the Republic. And it's also the reason why for centuries during the Republic, they were very anti-king of any kind. There's a reason they, they always had two consuls in place because of him, so no, no one person was ever in power. But right before that, we get the Sybil's backstory before they actually go to the tomb. And I found this chapter really interesting because it ties together the Sybil and then Reyna very intentionally Mm -hmm. in terms of like Apollo. And like the chapter opens with them talking to Hazel about like, oh, I don't have the curse anymore. Kind of sort of maybe. Ah, it's complicated. It's because Frank. But it's not because Frank. Like, I don't need a fella. But like, it's kind of because Frank. Don't worry about it. But we love each other. That's important. Yeah, I definitely want to unpack that a little bit more later on. I love the Sybil. <laughs> I honestly, like, I want, I think the reason why I really like this series is all of these flashback scenes are such bangers. Like, I love the drama of it all. Um, but so I thought Rick made up that the Sybil uh, gave Tarquin the books to purchase because Tarquin did, like, die in Kume. But it turns out that's actually in, like, at least some historical accounts. Like, that story exists. He didn't make that up, which is really interesting. 
what a businesswoman. She's like, I'm going to keep burning these prophecies until you pay my price, motherfucker. Yeah, and I did just want to flag the way Apollo describes it when she does it, where he says she plunges generations into darkness when she does it. Yeah. So it's just like reinforcing this idea of like prophecy being this like beacon of understanding and also like clarity. But yeah, let's talk about Reyna. Yeah, because after we get Hazel and Frank and this explicitly like, oh, this like bond of like trust and romantic love between the two of them has like helped Hazel come overcome a curse. And then we get the Sybil and Apollo being like, hey, you're hot. Let's hook up. And her being like, no. And him being like, I'll make you immortal. And her being like, you could do that? Yeah, I just did it. Now we have to hook up. And her being like, no. And him being like, fine. Then you're mortal, but you don't have youth. And just that response to the rejection. And then it leading right into us finding out why he's been so weird about Reyna this whole book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Literally Apollo wondering. It's like, well, I'm not mortal or a god and I'm not a demigod. And Venus said that a demigod wouldn't be able to heal her heart. But like maybe I could, except I suck in relationships and I'm not a good person. So maybe I can't. And just very specifically tying these ideas together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think the thing that Apollo dwells the most on was how destructive love is when uh, mm-hmm. as a, with Apollo as a god. Um, which he meditates on yeah. as well. And it's something I personally find like as a really fascinating concept. Yeah. There are these two parallel themes that I find pop up continuously throughout this book that kind of start in this scene when they're both brought up at the same time, which is like the exploration of romances that have brought people peace and that, you know, people rely heavily on, like with Hazel and Frank, and then we'll see later with like the God of Silence and the, the Sybil. Mm-hmm. And then we've already seen how much pain that Apollo has caused and derived from his romantic relationships, but we just like pile it on mm-hmm. at the end of this book. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then Reyna is sort of like this midpoint in the middle that's like, this could be the relationship in which that doesn't happen. The one relationship in which that doesn't happen, where you actually do get to like heal a little bit. But it could also just be mm-hmm. like, you know, you don't know which one of those parallels you're going to be continuing. <laughs> And then it's neither. And then it's neither. (laughs) Yeah, I also, I do love that we get flashes in each book of Apollo as a god because each book it feels like so, there's like so much more of a gap between him as he is now and like him as he is as a god and like Mm -hmm. how he behaves because we're seeing him again, like turning someone immortal without even necessarily like thinking about it, like almost just like, yes, I'm going to give you this amazing gift and like being so vindictive and so fickle. Mm-hmm. And just like how I, I love that we're continuing to see this as contrast to really keep a check, like to really check in on where we're at with Apollo. It's really, I think in this book as well, it's so disparate. Like I think in the last book and even even in The Dark Prophecy, like you're really starting to see how different they are. But I think in this book also, it's Apollo realizing just like when he's talking about um, Hippocrates and stuff and how he used to bully him, like him realizing just how much he was perpetuating the abusive dynamic of the gods so I think it's a really good that we're still keeping touchstones on that and really like making him confront it using the actual words like abusive to really drive it home. Yeah. And it's like Apollo going from just reflecting on the things he did in his past that caused like him pain or like Hyacinth and Daphne in the first book and like that romantic loss and him acknowledging that like it was my fault because I wasn't 
I just wasn't perfect and I wasn't good. And that kind of becoming not just reflecting and acknowledging I messed up in the past, but that shifting into like in regards to Reyna, him actually thinking about the potential consequences of his actions rather than just being like, I want this, so I'm going to do it. And then whatever happens, like him responding and just like, because a Sybil is like, oh, could you give me all the life every year in the sand? And him just, yep, did it. Didn't even think about what she's saying or where that would go. And then when she says still like refuses him him turning it into well i'm not going to give you youth so you'll just age and just like not thinking ahead about what might happen if he does that and now with reyna and actually gets to the point where he is thinking about the consequences of his potential actions not just taking ownership for the consequences of his past ones yeah i think where apollo is in his growth in this book i've found most interesting or at least most revealing to look at it through the lens of like him versus the emperors because i remember like first meeting commodus and being like he is such an apollo parallel and then Mm. now i look at commodus and i'm like you two are nothing alike anymore despite you know it's only been i don't know how many months even if it's been a month i don't know i don't know how much time has passed (laughs) but already they are not the same person anymore and commodus and caligula are becoming less of like the Apollo parallel and him fighting himself and more just like him fighting Roman history and a system mm-hmm. which we've we've noted I think with, at least with Caligula I don't remember if we did it with Commodus yes we did do it with Commodus where they sort of both more from like being the Apollo representative into like the Zeus representative because like mm-hmm. Commodus in taking power then becomes more like Zeus in Apollo's mind and like Caligula when he was killing Jason was explicitly compared to Zeus. And so in that way, like they, you can see Apollo's growth through the fact that you can't really compare him anymore to Mm. the emperors. He's very much, I think it's exactly like he still, he still compares himself to the emperors. He still views himself as responsible for any harm, any damage that they cause. And like, he's just as bad as they are. Because now he is thinking of consequences of his choices that he could make, whereas the emperors don't because they don't care because they justify every choice even before they make it. Yeah. Which is something that Apollo just doesn't do. It's like, yeah, you definitely were that person. But the fact that you're even, you might, being afraid of the fact that you might be like them is proof that you are not like them. Yeah. It's what Reyna tells him later about like, yeah, you did a lot of evil things, but you realize that now and you're trying to make, you can't fix it. You can't make up for it, but you can add more good things in your column now because you are aware and thinking ahead. Yeah. I don't know if we've actually said this explicitly yet. Um, or like emphasized this in the way that I want to but like the emperors are such a huge part of why I love this series <laughs> they're great villains they're incredible they're villains they're so compelling and like constant and they're like distinct and different and like feel like a very real threat in the way that like past villains sometimes have felt like they're not around or they are you don't feel their impact unless they're standing right in front of you mm. or like you wonder why we even bothered to care about them as a villain at all yeah and yet they're they're just guys like they're just men yeah their only real power is that they are undying thanks to humans like thanks to the people yeah. who were inspired by them they they aren't fully supernatural or mythological though like they're just a group of deeply evil men <laughs> who flourish they're- yeah thanks to the society or thanks to the civilization that they were uh, a part of and that the gods are a part of but they still are like they're just the scariest of rick's villains to me (laughs) 
they're wealthy, powerful men in the West, and what's more evil than that? Yeah, and I think also, like, the source of their wealth and power is, like, the memory of Rome Mm -hmm. and the parallels we have to Rome. Yes. So they're just, like, this great... Like, a thought I had about Tarquin is he sort of symbolically, like, a mirror to all of the worst aspects of Rome during the time he lived. Mm -hmm. And I feel like these emperors are sort of functioning in the same way here, where they're just, like, that mirror to all of the worst aspects of the Roman Empire. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they just, it's like they represent just everything that their world has been built on. And it's like the part we don't want to look at and that you want to ignore that Mm -hmm. exists. That's there. That's always been there. Mm -hmm. That's just been like growing in the shadows. Yeah, that like this is still here today. Like the the super yachts. Yeah, Kilagila has 50 of them and that's maybe overkill. (laughs) But maybe the fact that super yachts exist, period. And that actual living humans own them is wild. Or the way Commodus behaves and the showmanship and just wanting the glory and applause while you do horrendous things and care nothing for the life of of other creatures. And Nero framing himself as like a just father while he abuses his children. Like that's been there and is still there. And I think that is why it feels so deeply real and interesting as villains because it is an actual real threat that you will encounter in your world. You're not going to find a titan resurrecting or the earth itself isn't going to be like, ah, fuck you in particular. (laughs) But these, the emperors, these men are real. Mm -hmm. So we make it to Tarquin's tomb and we see Tarquin, who is mostly a corpse now, along with the Uranomoi, the ghouls from earlier. Meg tries to kill Tarquin. And yes. Meg does try to kill Tarquin. Because she thinks if she kills him, it'll save Apollo. And I just, that's why I wanted to bring yeah. that up. Because this book really cements Meg and Apollo are siblings now. And they love each other. Yeah. And it's important to me. They, like, start actually saying they love each other. It's yeah. so cute. Well, mm-hmm. Actually, does Meg say she loves Apollo? Um, I think she just says that she knows Apollo loves her. I don't know if she ever. Yeah. She, she pulls Absolutely. a Han Solo. She Han Solo's <laughs> yeah. him. And so um, after they escape, they go and consult the Sibylline books again, and they put together the fact that the reason why communications have been down might have to do with the silent god they've mentioned. And they also mention a location where the god is. Raina gets to go on the quest, and I'm so happy. Yeah. Because we've never been on like a quest with Raina before. And she's so happy. She's so excited to go on a quest. We find out her, her cool Praetor's cape becomes a fashion scarf. Yeah. Kind of a sweater wrap. Right. And she drives a, a truck, which is so cool of her. With her two dogs in the back. <laughs> The queer energy. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then we find out she and Thalia have been pen pals. Mm-hmm. How? When? When did this obviously had to have happened before all communication shut down? I love it so much. And I just need to know more. When did they, when did they decide we're just going to write letters to each other and let wind spirits carry it? Like, that's so gay of them. <laughs> it's so gay of them. And eventually Apollo's like, oh, um, so are like you and like Talia just like whatever? And Reyna has a whole line where she gets that asked that all the time. But she's like, why does a strong friendship always have to progress to romance? Talia's an excellent friend. Why would I risk messing that up? That's such a specific statement. It's such a specific Not just <laughs> that it's, it's not just we don't have that. Or why should why do people expect that? Like, why can't friendship be enough for everyone? Like, I don't want to risk messing that up. Suspicious. Is a line I have said in the past <laughs> about someone I called my best friend. Mm-hmm. And then jump skip just a little bit ahead where we finally have Apollo being like, okay, so she's not dating Talia. I'm just going to suit my shot and see what happens. Um, Venus can't curse me because I'm not technically a god, so maybe this will count. Do you, I could be your boyfriend. <laughs> and at first he's like, oh, she's going to kill me. And then she's laughing. She's laughing so hard. She's crying. She's like, that's so fucking funny. 
I would never date you if you were Apollo. And even though you're Lester, and yeah, you're kind of cute and like kind of adorable, whatever. No. And Apollo at the end, when it's all over, he's like, when I become a god again, Venus is going to be on the top of my vengeance list. And I love that so much. Not just because Apollo gets laughed in the face, because I think uh, every romantic partner, the Sybil, Daphne, everyone else would just, they, I just, even Hyacinth, I think just a little bit of applause, like, thank you, Reyna. But also that at the end of it, like, he even thinks, like, while she's laughing at him and rejecting him, he thinks, ah, she's never been more beautiful. That's so unfair, which is the opposite of when the Sybil was rejecting him and how he thinks that, like, everything I loved about her, Mm. I hate now. Mm. And at the end, when it's all over and he's been thoroughly rejected and completely put low, he's like, I'm going to get Venus for this. It's not ire towards Reyna. It's not about her. It's like he, I think that's also why the Sybil and Reyna are connected. And it's not the potential of a romantic partner for Apollo. It is the way he responds to rejection in his pursuit Mm. of romance. And that demonstrating that he has changed so much. I think his motives also are different here. Because I think with the Sybil and the rest of them we've seen, like I said, they're quite selfish motives. Mm Mm-hmm. Versus here, like, I, I think what he's mostly thinking about is, like, I mean, it would be, it'd be cool to date her because she's, like, cool, super cool, and she's super pretty, and, like, yeah. yeah. But he doesn't seem like he's, like, you know, that in love with her or, like, invested in her specifically. He's got, like, a bit of a crush, but I think his main driving reasoning is thinking, like, maybe I can help her. Maybe this is what needs to happen. I would almost argue that it actually is selfish for him being, like, maybe I could help her. Because if he was the one who could help her and actually being in a romantic relationship with him could actually make Raina's life better when compared to every other person. It would almost be like a validation of himself and being like, I'm not so unworthy. I'm not so terrible. Look, I can be in a relationship and I don't ruin everybody's lives. That's true. I think that's fair. Although I will say again, with the Frank and Hazel specifically, I have a lot of thoughts on that, Mm -hmm. but I do think like the spark notes version of my thoughts on it, for them is they sort of take each other's burden they kind of break each other's curse and I think it's that mutual aspect of it that makes it different Mm. so I feel like part of it is like he's thinking he might get something out of it too but he's also like it's sort of the idea of like I'll break your curse maybe you can help me with mine somehow maybe you can help me transcend my curse too I like that and I think that is like a healthy relationship where if you're in a relationship with someone just to give to them just to help them and there is nothing for you that in the end can actually suck a lot <laughs> but that's where it and then and then right and then the dogs come back and they're like what did you do to our mother she's never what is this sound she's making we've never heard it before and it is just because Raina has so much of a burden like when they're like Raina, you should go on the quest because it clearly the prophecy says it's you and she's like I can't leave the the Legion. No, I have to be here. I I have to. You rely Mm -hmm. on me. And that's when we get into what her power is, is literally giving her strength to everybody else, literally being the thing that everyone relies on. That's a lot to ask of a 17-year-old. And I think she deserves deserves to laugh that hard the most out of anybody. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Which is great. I think it's kind of like Meg too, where she gets to like be a kid a little bit. Here, Reyna yes! gets to like actually let go a little bit, go on a quest, and not just be the dutiful one. So they manage to climb up where Apollo is again confronted mm-hmm. with 
one of his past deeds as a god that was bad where he created ravens as punishment, effectively just being vindictive again mm-hmm. and being horrible to one of his romantic interests. Yeah. This scene was so funny to me the first time I read so it. I, I was know. like crying you, laughing. Your girlfriend was pregnant <laughs> when you had your sister kill her and then she's already accidentally kicked him in the face when she slipped and now she for reals tries to kick him in the face. Yes. I yeah, love- she's like, no, that was an accident before. I need to, it needs to be on yeah. purpose. <laughs> that one doesn't count. I also, I got so excited about Ravens, but then it didn't pan out into what I was hoping would happen, which is an all-out Roman naval battle. Yes, I said naval battle. (laughs) We'll get to that. I also really liked what they were climbing up, like what he described as like a tripod, because that's like what the Oracle of Delphi would sit on. Like tripods are kind of like a thing in the ancient world. Like they're kind of a ritual thing. Mm -hmm. Just flagging that. And so then we finally confront the God of Silence and I find out why I have no idea who this fucker is. (laughs) And it's because he's a Ptolemy God. You you can't be expected to know everything. You didn't learn about Uh, all of them after reading the Kane Chronicles crossover short stories. I, you know. Amazing how it came back around. It came back around. Yeah, I was sitting here and I was like, when did Rick write that short story compared to now? Like, how long has he, how long has he had this guy locked and loaded? Like, <laughs> ages. Ages. Because I think those all came out before the Trials books were dropping. Because they were, like, in the back of Magnus Chase books. Yeah. I did look him up afterwards. So they, they find out the God of Silence is Harpocrates. There's a lot of interesting things going on with this guy. But one I picked out that's not really talked about in this book is, so he's the child form of Horus, who is the Egyptian sun god. Mm-hmm. And so the child form of him would be like the the first light, the morning sun, mm-hmm. which I just thought, you know, interesting detail considering Apollo. But he also in the book talks about how the Greeks and Romans misinterpreted Harpocrates because they would see him depicted as a child with his finger in front of his lips, um, which in Egyptian hieroglyphs is the, uh, it looks like the hieroglyph for child, but they thought it meant he was the god of silence. We've talked a little bit about gods whose aspects and powers have changed depending on mortal perception. But I think this guy is probably one of the most extreme examples of that we have. Mm -hmm. It's a completely different meaning. They're not even a little bit related. And it's all entirely based on a misunderstanding that just like got run with. And not only that, he's gone from being like the early sun to being the god of silence, being literally like silenced. Mm -hmm. And being like having like all of this stuff taken away from him, probably like it's an effort for him to speak. Is it so? Is it is it that the because what like Meg's like that can't be true? They can't make a new god. And Apollo says never underestimate the power of thousands of humans believing all the same thing. Is it that the Greeks transformed that original Egyptian god into this person, or is it they created a completely new god? Because I read it as this is a completely new god that the Greeks created. Because I'm of the opinion that in the world, the humans created all of the gods and they don't actually exist any more than like the economy is a real thing because we say so, but it has real impact because we gave it power. I think based on the lore that we've built in these books of like how it all works, I would maybe interpret it as this was once an Egyptian god, but there was a long like process where he probably went through something similar to Apollo waking up one day and he was the sun god um, but at a certain point so much of what he used to be disappeared so that he was left only with what humanity believed of him now but I don't know because like Serapis or Serapis from uh, the short stories was definitely like his own thing so maybe that's how these gods work 
I, I yeah, I'm just like interested in like the world building that gets created because like now the Talmud gods and the they don't just exist in these like side stories. They've been brought into this like main canon in this series that builds establishes a lot of pieces that are spreading outward into the future of what this world is supposed to be. I mm. basically what I'm saying is I want Atomic God to have to interact with the Egyptian version that the Greeks misinterpreted. Like that's what I would love to see and what that would be because I think he's a new guy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that works too. I do feel like him being this like bastardization is sort of intended to be part of the story because mm-hmm. again, like the desecration of it all. It's also possible that like this is the surviving like memory of this guy so maybe this is the only part of him that's left being remembered Mm, mm, because the egyptian guy is like gone yeah i found it interesting that this this is this concept of like the the gods and this like corrupted version of a god being created by human minds is introduced in this book about the emperors who have made themselves gods because of the human minds that have made them gods and demonstrating that that isn't inherently a good thing just because a lot of people believe it and accept it, it doesn't necessarily make it right or correct. And that's something that should be questioned. Also in this scene, we get the reveal of what has happened to the Sybil. Oh, so cool. Yeah. So sad. So cool. It's so poetic. It's like the God of Silence and the Voice in the Jar. Yeah. I mean, come on. That's such a beautiful poem title. I liked it. I found it delightfully charming, honestly. And sad. I haven't fully put this together yet for how I want to connect it all. But there was a line that stood out to me earlier in the book when they're talking about the ghouls, where Apollo mentions that another name for them in Latin is nuntius, which means messenger. And I'm realizing, like, so the god of silence, he's being kind of fastened in place to get rid of all communication between the demigods. He's the reason why they haven't been able to uh, reach anybody. So there's something here about him and like halting all of those messages between people and also the connection of these like voices from the dead, these bodies that haven't been buried, that haven't been put to rest coming back as messengers and the voice in the jar. There's something there. I haven't put it together yet, though. I mean, I guess it's sort of a message from the emperors like uh, this is the only message you'll be receiving. Death is coming. I was also I couldn't help but think about Hebe during this, too. Mm. another like sort of childlike god that's a good point <laughs> i feel like that part of the like the um like what i said before about the physically unnatural vibe of like just aging forever and like that perspective on immortality it does it i do think it's one that we saw in chalice of the gods too i haven't finished i haven't finished chalice okay of the gods. we'll stop there then but basically the way the scene resolves is the god of silence and the sibyl realize how much Apollo has changed since they knew him and uh, release their hold on their own lives. As she just the sickest burn on Apollo before she lets herself go into the great oblivion. Oh, yeah. I forgive you. Not because you deserve it. I'm just not going to carry this hate with me. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Well, this to me, this is what I was going to say. It's 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 another little tiny Iliad reference to me. Hmm. The forgiveness and not letting go of the anger, which I've talked about a lot with the Iliad. But also, when Harpocrates dies, it, the description is his last breath, a fading glimmer, a silver life force that enters the jar. Mm. Oh. And that's that kind of matches what happens in the Iliad with the death of the hero. They exhale their last breath, which is like a thing the Greeks believe. They believe your soul. And like life's breath um, is one of the definitions of the word psuche, which means like soul, psyche is mm-hmm. the English version of it. So like that is a, both a very Greek 
image of death and also kind of an Iliad reference because that's sort of like the death of the hero scene is the like the breath expelling from you. Mm -hmm. Also, Hippocrates is also really angry at Apollo and he's also kind of letting go of his anger with that because this is where we also get Apollo confronting a lot of the fact that he was like, he bullied this man Mm -hmm. a lot, very cruelly and for no reason. And here he like sort of acknowledges that he was perpetuating the abuse of Zeus to this man. And he's like, he has every right to be angry with me, and so does the Sybil. I enjoyed the the fact that it's the the I've already forgotten his name, the god of silence, uh, the Sybil, and the ravens, all in the same place. Mm-hmm. I like it. It feels like a great combination of Caligula and Commodus's like specific, the specific kinds of punishments that they would want to inflict on Apollo. Because, like, that mm-hmm. brand of cruelty feels very Caligula, but, like, the specific torture through betrayals that are chosen specifically to mm-hmm. hurt Apollo feels very targeted from Commodus. Like, I like... Oh, yeah. That whole scene mm-hmm. felt like a combination of the two of them using yeah. Apollo's newfound guilt against him. Um. All right. Shall we get to the battle? Yes. yes. I love this battle. It's really good. <laughs> Yeah, I want to start with this quote from Apollo that kind of goes to what I was saying before. But again, just puts it so explicitly. This is something Phoebe and I have talked about before with this series. We'll be like, oh, wow, I'm really picking up this vibe. And then Apollo will just say it. (laughs) (laughs) But in this case, it's, uh, quote, this is how it ended, I thought bitterly. Not fighting threats from the outside, but fighting against the ugliest side of our own history. (laughs) Mm. I will say, read the Roman Navy thing. Please go off. (laughs) The Romans are not known for being a naval power. This is true. However, that does not mean they did not have a strong navy. It's just, like, not the thing they're famous for. However, they are famous for one, actually three, major naval conflicts. And those naval conflicts, which we call the Punic Wars, which are their wars with Carthage, which are basically what put Rome on the map politically in the grand scheme of the Mediterranean. Carthage is in Tunisia, modern-day Tunisia and North Africa. They were, at the time, the foremost naval power in the Mediterranean. The Romans, uh, who did not have a navy at this time, had to learn and adapt very quickly to go to war with Carthage. And they did it in a very Roman way, because while they did not have a navy, they did have resources. They had trees, which are very critical in building ships, and they had a lot of lives. To, they had lives. <laughs> uh, and in a very Roman fashion, they proceeded to use both with uh, indis- uh, indiscriminately. So basically what they did was they found captured Carthaginian ships or wrecked Carthaginian ships and started copying their designs. Um, now, at the time, naval warfare was fought by ramming each other. There's no cannons, mm-hmm. remember. There's, you don't really like take like projectile weapons onto ships either. You would ram each other and the ship would sink or you would try to take the ship. What, what the Romans did, and this is where the raven thing comes back, they invented this thing called a corvus, which means beak, or it's the word for, I think it's either raven or crow, where they'd basically put a giant plank of wood on the front of their ships, because in their brains they were like, well, we're not as good at sailing, so what if we make it a land battle on the sea? And so what they would do is they would get close to the other Carthaginian ship and put down basically a plank from their ship onto the Carthaginian ship. Oh my god. And send over soldiers to attack. Now at the time, the Carthaginians would not necessarily be having soldiers on their ships. They'd be like rowers. Mm -hmm. And the Romans would just take their ships. 
So yeah, the Romans for sure had a navy, and they're actually even known for winning one of the biggest naval bat- naval series of wars ever. So I was really, really hoping. I was I was waiting for a naval battle, and I was waiting for a Corvus. I was like, come on. You know, the fact that Reyna was a pirate at one point in her life, and know. knows, like, like, she could lead the coolest battle scene now that I'm thinking that about it. That would have been cool. That would have been not. And so that we got, so good. We got a pink-haired lesbian and a handful of nature spirits who just sabotaged 15 super yachts. And, I mean, just speaking as a fan who liked the book, I thought that was pretty baller. My own, my only regret was that Caligula was not alive to see it happen. Yeah, yeah, that was. I will say that was also pretty baller. Mm-hmm. I did enjoy that, mm-hmm. but I also was so excited for a proper naval battle. Alas, alack. I did enjoy how this battle was written, though. It was very like you really got a sense of like the carnage of it and how hopeless everything felt. Mm-hmm. And that way, it did kind of remind me of the battle at the end of Battle of the Labyrinth because that mm-hmm. was just like brutal. Yeah, mm-hmm. I could see that. The way this plays out is that Apollo goes to make the sacrifice to the gods that he's been meaning to make this entire time using the voice of, or the the final breath of the god of silence. And his name was? Uh, it was definitely something with an H. <laughs> uh, he decides to make the sacrifice to um, Diana. I love that. Yeah. I love that it's his sister. I love yeah. that he even thinks about I could summon Zeus and get like that power trip, but no, he's going to choose the one god that he actually has a healthy relationship with. And he's been wanting to see Artemis from the very first chapter. Like when Meg yeah. first appeared, he briefly thought it was Artemis. And so finally, finally getting to see a sister just, I'm an older sister, so like it means a lot to me. We're all older sisters here. Look at that. Oh, yeah. Yay! Are we, are we all oldest daughters? Mm, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but once that sacrifice has been made, there's no sign of her yet. So he makes his way back to the tunnel where Frank is fighting off the emperor's forces and uh, the emperors themselves now. And that's where we get mm, probably my favorite scene in this book. Yeah, that's a good one. Where Frank challenges the emperors to like a two-on-one, a two-on-one fight. Single combat. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oof. Um, which Apollo volunteers to help him out, so it's two-on-two. But Frank is not happy about that because he has other plans. <laughs> Basically, we find out that Frank's plan was just to get everyone out of the tunnel and then uh, set his uh, his firewood on fire. And he's filled the tunnel with things that will explode. This is like a wily Coyote Acme ass explosion in yeah. here. Like, yeah. watch out. It is a self-sacrifice to the extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we get so many, like, the Jason parallels here. Oh, my I God. Know. I love the moment where um, Caligula gets Frank on, on his stomach on the ground and is mm-hmm. like, I'm going to do it again. Part two. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what happened? Do you remember what happens next, Apollo? It's evil. And Apollo is like helplessly having to, thinking he's about to watch this happen again. Mm-hmm. And then Frank, uh, like choking Caligula out, is also great. <laughs> Wait, can we double back to how Frank survives not getting stabbed? And it is either A, because Rick Riordan forgot that the reason. Reyna's cloak is a shield is because it was a gift from two goddesses while she was uh, killing the worst like man who killed woman throughout history in these books or uh, unlike with Jason the gods actually got involved and helped save him because yeah. I just can't believe that the cloak was just designed to do it because we know it's a gift from the goddesses so yeah. uh, we can say maybe Ares did it I think Bologna stepped in so her daughter could retire mm, yeah that's a good that makes theory sense to me a like blessing was, from Bologna because yeah. I forgot 
that that was how Rana got the cloak. Because in this book, it's definitely like, that's just how Pryder's cloaks work. And it's like, nah, it was this really powerful, like, Athena and Bologna coming together to bless Rada in this fight and save her life. I would, I, maybe it was like Venus and Bologna or something. Maybe it's them too helping out a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But also, Venus kind of loves it when like a uh, love, like love and heartbreak suffering. So she also probably would have been super into watching like Hazel mourn the loss of a love. So. Well, I was thinking more like in terms of the interests of like keeping the interests of Raina, our girl. That's true. Okay. I like that. I like that a lot. Making sure Raina, as you said, gets to retire. Mm-hmm. Because she can't, if Frank dies, she doesn't get to, to retire and make a decision because she feels responsible. She's not here. We didn't even talk about that. They got, Apollo crashed the truck. Raina oh, broke yeah. her leg. <laughs> She's not in this fight, this huge fight that like the, the literally entire existence of these people who rely on you. And she's not able to be there. And I think that's so yeah. important for her character. Mm-hmm. It is. I think this is the moment when that happened and she got sidelined. I thought to myself oh, this is good because this mm-hmm. will show her, hopefully, assuming this battle goes well, which I think it will because that's usually how these books go. Yeah. I think this will show her that they can, they're okay without her. Mm-hmm. She doesn't need to be there all the time, mm-hmm. always, like, doing this. Like, she, it's okay. She's allowed to keep her strength for herself. Yeah, this, this scene, though, with Frank and Apollo and Commodus and Caligula, where Apollo's also realizing what Frank's up to. Mm-hmm. Because Hazel's been worried about him the whole book, thinking that he's acting more and more reckless. And there's an interesting line earlier where we, we find out that um, before Apollo and Meg got to New Rome, they prior, prior had fought these ghouls with Tarquin, and they'd finally turned the tide at the Tiber. And there's a line in the prophecy of, like, the Tiber fills with bodies or something. Then later in the book, we find out from Hazel that it wasn't a we, it was Frank. Frank almost single-handedly helped turn the tide at the Tiber. Which I thought was really interesting, because again, another very tiny little Iliad reference, because there's a part in the Iliad after the death of Patroclus where Achilles fills the, a river with bodies to the point that the river god comes out and is like, hey, what the fuck, man? And Achilles is like, you want to fight too? So it's interesting to me, because Frank is kind of drawing this Achilles parallel, because after the death of Patroclus, mm. after all of this, there's a point where Achilles is just like, doesn't care anymore about anything. And he just like impent. He's just like intent on doing as much damage as possible, and just like it basically, as, as I wrote in my notes, strong self-sacrificing slash impending burnout energy, which in mm-hmm. Frank's case is pretty literal. It's also like Achilles. His, the prophecy was like, "You'll live a long, quiet life or a short, bright one." Yeah, and like mm-hmm. Frank literally which, says, "If I'm gonna burn, I'm yeah. gonna burn bright." It reminded me of um, the fight in House of Hades on the bridge in Venice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I was just thinking a lot about how shaken he was afterward and how much he just mm-hmm. hated doing that. And then knowing that he yeah. had done it again, it sounds like basically at the same scale and then came out of it just like looking for another fight and like mm-hmm. being more and more reckless. I was like, I need to, I, yeah. what's going on with Frank? <laughs> yeah. There is a line later in the book, because this is where I flagged that connection. Not with the Tiber, though. That's actually really interesting. But they say New Rome needed a new Horatius, which is a period in mm. um, early in Rome's history mm. where Horatius uh, single-handedly held a bridge. And that deed is referenced by Mars during that scene in Heroes of Olympus with Frank. Um, and that's like explicitly, like that parallel is like explicitly drawn there also. And they're talking about his sacrifice at that point in this book but I do think it's really interesting that 
this is that would be like what the third time now that that's happened to Frank where mm-hmm. we would just keep drawing this parallel. Yeah. Cuz I think this book finally closes the door a bit on Frank and self-sacrifice cuz mm-hmm. that was a theme that was introduced in Son of Neptune really strongly and then we just never really followed up on that one. Mm-hmm. Well, because it was like done with at the end of <laughs> Son of Neptune when it shouldn't have been. <laughs> yeah. But I do feel like it never, like, they never, like, fully closed the book. Because I think Frank just started Son of Neptune so angry at his mom Mm -hmm. for sacrificing herself for her comrades. And I think, like, on the page it said he kind of fully understood it in Son of Neptune. But this more feels like the moment to me where he's actually closing that loop. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really interesting if, like... Again, that rising sort of Marsness in him that I think he's struggled a lot with holding together, which was sort of resolved in him taking on the scepter of Diocletian and taking on the leadership role. But I mean, how much did we actually explore in Blood of Olympus of that? Frank is not in mm. Blood of Olympus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. We even get the whole end of like, oh, you'll travel around and go back to the beginning of, of your family line. And we aren't even, we don't even see that scene. We see yeah. Piper outside of the room and we don't even get that. That was wild. Yeah, I definitely prefer this as an end to Frank's arc because we did see him find like power in being Mars's kid and start to understand sacrifice and find all of these pieces of his arc in uh, Heroes of Olympus, but we never saw him implement them. And here he kind of does it all at once. I love a big damn hero moment. And yeah. I just I just think this was so well-crafted and Frank getting this from where he begins at Son of Neptune. And I also really like that Apollo was there for it. And this, like, God who Apollo had prayed, like, hey, you're my dad, right? Like, please be my dad and please claim me. And, like, that's not it. But we have this, like, really incredible moment. And Apollo was present to see it. Like, Yeah. I, I do love how much Frank still believes in Apollo and how yes! that's such yeah. a moment. He literally at some point tells Apollo... I'm not ready to live in a world without an Apollo. And I like, I had a whole thing about that actually that I wrote down just in Apollo's growth where he is becoming more and more self-loathing as he is like taking responsibility mm. for the terrible things and recognizing like the, the awful things he has caused and like now blaming himself for Jason's death and like the way station deaths and just all those things that happened. And yeah. I think having Frank, someone who believes in him to like encourage him to be like, but you are valuable, you are loved, you do have things to offer, the world would be a worse place without you. I think it's so important on like this kind of healing journey where when you're in that space and trying to to like do better and learn more about where you've been and like improve as a person, there can be a pitfall when you start to realize how badly you've messed up in the past and start to think that like I am not good enough I will never be good enough I am unjust and unworthy and I'm just a bad person I can't help anybody and to have like positive influences around you like Frank and and Meg and and Hazel and like the the people that Apollo is choosing to surround himself with in this journey compared to who he has been with on like didn't make the choice to be an Olympian or be on the council or be around the the gods who kind of molded him into who he was as a god and that kind of sliding back into what we talked about earlier of like, does Apollo want to be a god anymore? Where is home for, for Meg and him at the end of this? Mm-hmm. I think to that end also, as I said, like to me, this whole book is like a funeral. And where a Roman funeral ends is with cremation. Well, I guess interring the, the ashes, but cremation came to mind. Mm. But uh, this idea of him, he doesn't just sacrifice himself, but he sacrifices himself in fire he like 
creates this inferno. He creates this moment. And there's a lot said about this action for him with, you know, the, the, the stick of wood that's haunted him, that's like faded. That's his curse, essentially. How that is him taking control of his fate and like forging himself like a new life, new identity, new everything. It feels in that moment like this lighting of this pyre by Frank is doing exactly that. It's really, that's like the moment where, like, I feel like Frank is doing it, but also Apollo and like a lot of these characters are sort of taking hold of everything they've been holding onto. And that's the moment of catharsis where they just like let it go and take control of everything and be able to like reset the narrative and kind of come out like with that power. And I feel like symbolically in a funeral, it's the same thing where that's the moment you're supposed to, like you're done with your grieving, now you're letting go. And coming back to the Iliad stuff, like that's also the huge deal with the bodies in the Iliad and why it's so important that they get proper burials. Why the entirety of the second to last book of the Iliad is funeral games. It's like that grieving process where you're finally starting to be able to get to the point where you can let people go. And like the last line of the Iliad is them lighting the pyre for Hector. Like it is that full circle moment of just like, okay, we're, we're able to finally now move on because of this. Mm. I think in some ways, it uh, he also functions in that way for the audience post Jason, because he is mirroring Jason so explicitly in this scene, and like even returns to them later, exactly the way that Jason's mm. body did. But like, this time it's mm. he's survived oh my god yeah and you know yeah. it's it's definitely it it acts as a catharsis post post jason mm-hmm. <laughs> and like i mean it is skipping ahead a little bit to talk about the thing the, the fact that uh frank survives this but in response to what you just said i i i think the first time i read this i was a little bit confused by like why he survived this at all mm-hmm. because like i know they explain it but i was like what, what are you talking they air about? They explain it. Like, they, I think they also, like, it could be this, but honestly, I think they're just like, I don't know, man, it's a miracle. Yeah, but th- this time I, I understood it a little bit more because of the conversations that we've been having about the agency that having a prophecy can give you mm-hmm. and the idea that, like, in that moment, Frank took control of his destiny and if the firewood is, like, sort of a physical prophecy that by playing into the prophecy it's like its own type of agency so he kind of like made a paradox out of it and logicked his way out Mm -hmm. the original myth where this also happens you know the firewood is used as i I would almost say it's like kind of you know in the just in the myth in a vacuum it just feels like a little like kind of a uh, metaphor for like letting your kids go and not like over you know like letting go of like response like you're still holding like that responsibility for your kids Mm -hmm. And then, because um, in the in the story, as we get told in the narrative, it's this guy, Meliager, who um, is foretold to be this, like, great, amazing guy, but he does a bunch of bad stuff, and his mom is so horrified by it that she, keeping the firewood secret for his whole life, that like, he doesn't even know about it, finally, like, puts it in the fire. And so it's just, like, it's interesting that they draw that comparison because Frank's story with that is so opposite, mm-hmm. everything about that. Uh, honestly, the the uh, the idea of like responsibility and taking responsibility is kind of like the the big theme that I identified in reading it as like each of the characters like 
Apollo learning to take responsibility for past actions and think to future ones. Reyna taking responsibility for herself and the the like this curse that Venus has told her she has and like acknowledging that like I can't wait for someone else. There is no one else. There won't be and that's fine. I don't need that. Frank taking responsibility for his own future. Even like Lavinia and her decision to like not follow fall in line and take responsibility and lead the the nature spirits to take out the the, the yacht with the Greek fire that would have destroyed everything. Like, all these individual characters taking responsibility for themselves and their narratives and their futures. It all goes super well for everybody, honestly. Well, except for all the dead people. Well, right, but none of them took responsibilities for right. themselves or on their own narratives. <laughs> so, like, it's, That's their it's, fault. <laughs> Bobby, Bobby let himself get turned into a zombie, the opposite of taking responsibility mm-hmm. for your own narrative, clearly. Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know what to say, Bobby. I'm sorry. Um, but... Yeah, it's interesting because this whole story is about like reclaiming prophecy and prophecy can feel like a thing where you have no responsibility and no free will because it's already been determined but like this story is seems to be trying to establish that like actually prophecy is an essential part of free will because if you have all the information then you're going to make more informed decisions yeah because that's sort of what we, we get revealed later that frank got his own prophecy and just went off and did this on his own mm-hmm. i would have liked him to loop hazel in on this and her to yeah be willing to like mean. let go uh, like, I feel like if that, like, if the thing is like, oh, his mother kept the the wood and didn't let him take his own choice and they're so worried. I, I feel like the balance of them helping each other's curses would have, for me, felt a little bit more satisfying if Hazel had not, like, given him permission. She didn't have to like it, but, like, circling back to, like, Hazel and Frank are Romans and they need to understand, like, self-sacrifice and that's why that's that's important for them to be with Percy. Her also being able to demonstrate mm. that as like a a Roman belief or or value in this series. Yeah. Yeah. Her getting to let go and let Frank, the person she loves be responsible for his own future. It's fine. Whatever. (laughs) I also love that Apollo kills Commodus with a scream. I was about to say, this is the, this is my other favorite part of this book. (laughs) Uh It's such a brief moment. Like it's not even like a page long, but it feels like it's, it's such a release and such a, like, I just, for me, it's it's a little bit of part of the culmination of the theme, the like parallel themes that I mentioned earlier, um, because I feel mm-hmm. like Commodus is sort of the ultimate example of the like romantic partners that you derived pain from and caused pain to. Mm. Seeing him go through all of that with um, like the Sybil God of Silence moment, mm-hmm. and then like seeing him have to face Commodus at the end of all of this, and like it it just felt like the the negative culmination of this i feel like reina is like the ultimate culmination of this at the end of the book but i feel like yeah. this is like the culmination of all of those negative experiences and apollo just like just screaming him to death yeah, yeah. and i just i really love commodus as a villain because so much of what he does is to hurt apollo specifically cuz like the mm-hmm. the other emperors don't have that personal vendetta and so i feel like having commodus there and like just the way that he really relishes hurting Apollo, like in this scene, destroying Camp Jupiter, like attempting to destroy Camp Jupiter and just watching mm-hmm. Apollo react to it, like sitting there smiling, mm-hmm. waiting to see Apollo react to it. So I I enjoy seeing Apollo facing off against a manifestation of like his curse, what we've been calling his version of the romantic curse at the same time as mm-hmm. he's unleashing all of that grief and rage on someone who represents so much of who he was and where he comes from and is 
also someone who he had such a unique relationship with and who had such a unique impact on him. And the fact that he's killing him in the exact same way Mm -hmm. that he did the first time, but there's just no conflict now. I wonder, so it's like, Commodus and Apollo had like this romantic relationship, but it doesn't end the way like a Daphne or a Hyacinth or a Sybil does because they just stopped dating and Commodus went on to be emperor and was terrible. And so Apollo literally had to roll up and kill him. But I wonder if it's also like the... Wherefore, like, Reyna, Apollo hoped he could be someone that would be, like, a positive influence on her life and help her grow and heal and and be a more, like, version of herself. He had that opportunity with Commodus to potentially be a positive influence on this person when he was young and they were close and just enjoyed being around this hot guy for them just to, like, hang out in luxury and whatever and, like, didn't care that his, like, more harmful tendencies that those evolved into the monster Commodus became. Yeah, that's interesting. I do think it's a really good point that, like, the Commodus relationship did end so differently. But I think it also, it's, like, shows the fickleness of the gods. Like, Apollo as a god, like, doesn't really care. Like, he's not sitting here like, I'm going to mentor this man. I'm going to make him the best emperor Rome's ever had. He's just like, we both have daddy issues. Rock on. (laughs) Let's eat grape and let's eat grape. The single grape. Yeah, let's let's eat a single grape. So how does this book end? Um, (laughs) This one, Artemis and her hunters show up and they just wreck shop on Tarkin's like, we're going to invade from the sewers right about now. And it doesn't work because they're all dead because the hunters and Talia showed up. And they're able to turn the tides really nicely. I am glad that Hazel got to have this moment of rage at the end before we find out that Frank is alive. Because, you know, we talk about big three kid rage and we get a good example of it here when Apollo says... I thought Hazel might fly at him and rip his skull off with her bare hands. Her rage was so palpable, I could smell it like an approaching storm. Which is such a good line. It's unfortunate, really, that the hunters show up and take over before Hazel can do something with it, though. As happy as I am to see them. Yeah, and then Apollo and Artemis have a really great scene together, which I love. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's so interesting, because, again, Artemis is sort of reinforcing all these things, where she's like, I don't even... Like, he is treating her the way a human person, normal human person would treat a beloved sister. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, who are you? Yeah. Why are you? I don't know this? you anymore. But yeah. she also embraces him on his level, mm-hmm. which is really nice. Like she doesn't reject it. She kind of goes with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also, it's more, I wonder if it's like less like, oh, it's human, but more like Apollo's more willing to just be like open about like, hey, I love you. Yeah. I miss you. I care about you. I'm really glad you came. And she's like, we don't do that. At, what is this? What is this? I don't... Okay. Yeah, they're there. Tap, tap, tap. The ongoing argument of which one is the younger sibling uh, delights me. Yeah. They're just like brother and sister, and it's really cute. And I I do think that relationship, Mm -hmm. to me, is one of the most humanized relationships of the gods um, in this series and in mythology. Like, that's sort of all... Like, even in Titan's Curse, when you see them interact, you're like, yeah, Yeah. those are siblings. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's me and my brothers. Yeah. We're not yeah. on the same wavelength. Um, so it's nice that that element like carries over. And um, I also found it really interesting how his reaction when he thinks she's not coming is yeah. as we build up to it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think it's the same thing with Frank where I should maybe talk about this since I hadn't read the book before. I, I did clock that Frank was fine. Um, oh, yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> There was a lot of se- well. First of all, on like a meta, on a meta level, I was like, "There's no way I wouldn't have heard about this." Yeah. Um, but also, 
when they'd set up the like breaking the curses element of it, like them balancing out each other's stuff, that that kind of clued me into thinking like, okay, mm-hmm. this is, seems like a good setup for Frank and the Firewood. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how it was gonna go, but I, I didn't I didn't think it would be like a suicide mission right away. Um, mm-hmm. But when it got to that point. And I saw that I was like, oh, okay. I think that's how he's going to get out of it. And Apollo, I love that Apollo like runs ahead and starts like calling for like, get this. We need this. Like Mm -hmm. is almost has fully taken his place in this, this group. Kind of like we, we didn't quite see it in Camp Half-Blood, but here it's like he's become part of the Roman camp so much. And it's that point where Artemis disappears and he doesn't even notice she's gone because he's so focused on his family here. Yeah. As something we haven't really talked about, too, is that he starts um, actually using archery in this book. And in Camp Half-Blood, I think, he used archery, and maybe I don't know if he tried healing or not, but he sort of, he wasn't up to his godly par, and he was so upset with that, he swore off using it ever again. And then in this book, it feels like he's finally accepted that he, again, it's it feels like this is the turning point where he feels more mortal than godly, and now he's okay with, like, only being amazing, at, mm-hmm. not godly at archery and i wonder if it's a similar thing with healing where he just like didn't even try but now he's like okay yeah i can't just magic someone but i'm still the god of healing like i can do this yeah. on a normal level and i, I loved in speaking of like when he like makes the vow on the river sticks i won't do it again and then immediately breaks it i like that that's kind of revisited here when he's talking to meg about he's dying he's gonna be a zombie and he like he has a line where he's like i know not to promise her that it's gonna be okay like reflecting on like breaking my promise on the sticks like I don't I can't just make reckless promises I can't keep but Mm -hmm. he promises he's gonna keep fighting and then he doesn't make another promise until he can promise he's not giving up Mm. and like isn't just gonna make that things and then later when it's we see little Julia and our border statue god Terminus and Apollo promises them that they're gonna win that they're not gonna fall Mm -hmm. and I like the revisiting of promises and it's like Apollo is making promises that he intends to fight to keep Mm. yeah I felt like we had an interesting revisiting of that theme in this book because like mm-hmm. the, there was that like you just said and the idea of wishing was sort of introduced um, especially at the beginning of this book with like the Sybil making a wish by accident and then being held to it mm. for the rest of mm-hmm. her life and like when Apollo was talking to the Arrow of Dodona he says like I just wish I could figure out how to be me again and the arrow was like are you sure that's what you wish for yeah it, it reminded me a little bit of i mean the thing it's most reminiscent of is the way that caligula holds people to their word mm-hmm. and like the cruelty of a of a a wish that you can't go back on so uh post battle is it time to talk about rena's retirement yeah Good for her, honestly. She talks to Apollo and is like, all of her life she's been like, I've had to be the role that was assigned to me. And she just kind of has always filled the role, given her energy, her strength to what other people need of her in that moment. Mm. And because she was not able to be in the battle and because Frank survived and because she's been connected to the hunters and have this, she is able to make a decision that is fully for herself. Mm-hmm. And I, I love it. And she talks to Apollo about like, I don't need any, I'm not broken. I don't need anyone to heal my heart. I, I don't know myself. Maybe I want a partner. Maybe I don't, but I need, I want time to be me and focus on who that is. And I can have centuries over here with the mm-hmm. hunters of Artemis. I love that, that, that this is the reason that she joins the hunters. Like it's not mm-hmm. because the hunters are something she's specifically enthusiastic about as like a cause. Yes! It's just like, I want yeah. to give myself time 
and I'm going to be there. Like, she's fully intending on probably leaving at some point. And that's just a really interesting reason to join the Hunters. I found yeah. that so interesting as, like, a, a concept of the Hunters as being, like, this sect devoted to Artemis. And yeah. Artemis isn't there when... It's the first time we've seen someone join the Hunters or Artemis isn't there for. Mm -hmm. And didn't... And it, it, it brings into question what the nature of the Hunters of Artemis is, like, representing... And it feels like it's just meant to be a place for young women to find themselves and, and, and safety away from this pressure and the expectations that have been cast upon them. And sometimes that means they are there forever. And sometimes maybe it means they're there until they meet the love of their life and then go off and uh, adopt a daughter. And yeah. it, it simultaneously makes the uh, hunters feel less like an impossible, like super secret club to join, but also more like this space that is meant to be no expectations upon you. And that like, if Artemis herself is okay with like, you leave when you're ready, as long as while you're here, you keep your promises you made to me because I'm giving you my, a little bit of my goddess power to be immortal. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I really like as an interpretation of the hunters. Like in a system where the gods always put expectations on the demigods, on their followers, to do things for them, to yeah. be a certain way, to follow my expectations, to do my quest, to do my bidding, to find this thing, to solve my problems. Artemis creates a space for the, all, she views all young women as her her domain. Yeah. And it's also interesting that that is where, what we're exploring in this series too, when there's a huge point made about how vindictive a lot of the gods are mm -hmm. when you don't do what they want. And it's it's even something in like stories of Artemis. You yeah. Think. So it's interesting to me that like she is actually one of the most benevolent, benevolently generous gods we've seen with mm -hmm. regards to that if you are a young maiden who's devoted herself to you. Um, and it really sets up that interesting contrast with Apollo. And makes me wonder if that's also why he's able to have more of an understanding with her as a mortal. Mm -hmm. um, also, because she's not as much like, or at least she has not been depicted as in this, as much like the other gods. So the fandom will say that Reyna is canonically Arrow Ace, and I will subscribe to that wholeheartedly. But a character saying, hey, I just realized I don't need to be forced in a relationship to be happy and I'm going to take time to like solve myself doesn't automatically mean that they are arrowways. And I just I just I want her to be. But like I also need someone to just like, say the words because it's important to me. And this is just purely <laughs> me saying me things now. Yeah, me making like requests. she definitely a lot of what she says in this book flags very arrowways to me. Mm hmm. And the way she talks about her experience, but yeah, not I also being broken. agree that she mm -hmm. she can be a different flavor of queer, you know, like yeah. I I feel that Reina at the this ending for Reina feels like like I mentioned a culmination of that like romance theme that we've seen throughout yeah. this book because you know she she has felt all of this pressure like she says to feel completed by romance and to pair herself off to someone um mm -hmm. and that you know eventually she might do that in her own way in her own time but like as we've seen throughout this book she does have really meaningful and beautiful relationships with frank and with thalia mm -hmm. um that mm -hmm. she has found like a lot of strength and peace in i think throughout the book she clearly really relies on frank and mm -hmm. that's I think that's honestly part of why she's even able to let go is because throughout yeah. the last year she's been able to see that Frank is a capable leader and she's been able to step back like even an inch. And so feeling even mm -hmm. that much weight off of her shoulders, she realizes how much more of herself she can be and how much mm -hmm. more she'd like to get rid of. Um, yeah. And so 
I feel like that and then paired with like there's that moment it's kind of early on in the book which surprised me because I thought it would be more of an end of the book kind of thing <laughs> uh-huh. but when Apollo is thinking about Meg and thinks to himself that like even rela- relationships that aren't necessarily romantic can also be that impactful and like mm-hmm. he that's when he I think first thinks to himself that Meg is like a little sister to him um, yeah, and so just the two of those relationships, like coming out of this with Reyna going and joining the hunters, and going off to be with Thalia as like a some kind of relationship, some vague type of relationship <laughs> that's going to happen over there, mm-hmm. um, and then you know Apollo leaving with Meg at the end, um, and the two of them, you know, having found these relationships that aren't romantic, at least. And, and found some kind of, like, healing and peace in that when we've spent this whole book with, like, these very chaotic relationships over here for Apollo and then these mm-hmm. relation, r- relationships that have been strictly romantic that have been healing throughout the rest of the book on the other side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that that follows the book in which we discover Piper and Jason broke up. Mm-hmm. And, like, kind of that setting up the demonstration, the, like, romance romantic characters and pairing off doesn't have to be the end game but nor does that like ending of that have to be because they still were comrades they still were deep friends the loss of jason still hurt piper jason still loved piper but it doesn't have to be romantic love and i I really like that i wanted to specify that when i say i want it to be like specifically named i don't mean that like characters need to have a label to prove they're queer i mean that like as an ace person i'm tired of ace characters only being ace because the fandom or uh the creator said so on twitter mm-hmm. and i just mm. i talk about it all the time so like reina could have the language and if she doesn't need it and i i want to specify I, that's not what i'm saying i'm just saying if if it's canonical make it so yeah like i i think rick has actually said that she is some type of romantic and asexual mm-hmm. on twitter and i'm like Okay. But it's also like, I, I love the, like, the hang up Venus would have about that as a nice character, but also when she says the thing about why would I want to mess up my friendship with Talia? Mm-hmm. Like, it's all there on the page. I totally believe him when he says that, but it's also like kind of the vaguest representation that's in these books. So, yeah, if we ever get, when we get the uh, inevitable Reyna Thalia Hunter's book, even if she doesn't have the exact words for it, I kind of expect her to at least explain it in a way that young readers can grasp. Yeah. I mean, I see this book as like maybe Reina being at the beginning of her journey, figuring yeah. out herself. So maybe she doesn't fully know yet. She's looking at the memes, the ace memes and be like, ha, yeah. it me, ha, it me, ha, hold on. <laughs> so beads. I want mine to be about Reina because I literally messaged Emily months ago specifically to be like, can I come on for Tyrant's Tomb? I want to talk about Reina stuff. Like, that is why mm-hmm. I'm here. So, purple bead, because her creator's cloak. Mm-hmm. Jelly bean, because of her dogs. Oh, mm. that's cute. I'm going to go with the, the, the jar with the symbol. No, in it. stop stealing mine. No. <laughs> why? You do this all the time. Why can't you just have the same bead? Like, no, all the time. <laughs> it, okay, it doesn't have to be the jar. It doesn't have to no, be the I'll jar. No, I'll think of something else. <laughs> I did briefly consider having a bead that. Uh, looked like skin and then like had um, prophecy like fake oh. prophecy written <laughs> all over it and then I was like that sounds disgusting that's, that's cursed that's cursed <laughs> absolutely cursed no you know what mine will be a raven I'll do a raven just for the Corvus specifically for the ships that's what I, I need it for now you have to leave that part in Phoebe <laughs> 
whoa, the manipulation. That's 4D chess with the B. No, I'll just cut it at you saying, I'll do a raven and then cut out that part. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Thank you, Darian, for guesting. It was amazing. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I love, love every time I wake up and there's an episode of Monster Donut. It'll make me rethink about these books differently. And so I'm so delighted and honored that I got to come hang out. I hope the experience uh, was what what you wished it was to be sitting here with us recording for hours on it. Yeah, well, I I wished for two more hours, but I understand that some people have important (laughs) things they have to do. So it's fine. So please go ahead and plug where everyone can find you. I would love to. At the top, I mentioned my primary Percy Jackson mythology podcast. That is Muses of Mythology. I said I co-host it with my brother DJ. We talk about myths and the books and comic books and general sibling antics. So if you like that borderline chaos energy, you'll definitely find it there. I also do, and you find it's Muse of Mythology. It's on all your podcatchers. I made sure of it. We're also on Instagram at Muse of Myth if you just want to poke around there first. I also do a, another podcast that's a little bit more of like a literary theme analysis podcast. So if that's your vibe and that's why you're here, I can give you that as well. But about the Aragon books. So, <laughs> you know, not this at all. But with my, co-ho- uh, my co-host over there, Lucia Hart, and we discuss the revisiting the inherited cycle as adult writers, but like copywriters. So whatever. But just reassessing, spoiler free, rediving into this like childhood favorite and just dissecting what you can learn from it from a, like a writing creative standpoint. And that one's called Aragon and Back Again. We're also on Instagram at Aragon Pod and all the podcatchers as well. Go listen to our trailer. <laughs> It's yes. good. Yet another beloved children's series ruined by a terrible movie. And then being resurrected as a Disney Plus series. Yeah. Oh, I forgot <laughs> about that. So if you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us at PJOPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you have any thoughts that you would like to contribute to our wrap-up, since we're finishing up the Charles of Apollo <gasps> series, you can get in touch with us on any of those socials or at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com. Also, speaking of your thoughts and opinions, uh, for all those of you who have rated or reviewed us on any of your podcasting platforms, we really appreciate it. If you haven't already left one, it'd be really awesome to hear what you think of the show. Hopefully you like it. (laughs) Nothing feels better as a podcaster than finding a new five-star review and that someone actually took the time to write about why they like this thing. I know. It's so much time making. Go do it for Darian, too. It's the nicest presents. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you don't have time, just leave me a five-star review. Don't worry about it. But yeah, it's tis the holiday season. You should go give uh, Monster Donut a present by leaving them a nice, happy <laughs> review. Um, speaking of presents, we also hey. have merch, which you can find a link to in our link tree. And it's also at monsterdonut.redbubble.com. Um, and we also have a print shop on InPrint. Yeah. Baby, can I ask what you've been drawing for this episode? I know that's a thing, or I understand that's a thing you do, but I never know what it is until you <laughs> post it and say what it was. So can I ask? Um, so I'm thinking about drawing, like actually drawing the um, some kind of like parallel with Commodus and Apollo situation. Mm. But also if there are any requests, let me know. What I've actually been drawing this whole time is on this sticky note. I drew you. You drew me? <laughs> What? Oh my god! It's me! Ah! I wasn't prepared! <laughs> That's 
That's an honor. Have you ever ah! you've never driven, drawn? I've never people. drawn. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if there are any requests, maybe Raina in the pickup truck. I I want that one. Mm, you know what? That's a good one. Raina in the pickup truck with the dogs in the back and everything. Um. Okay. Is that everything? I think that's everything. Cool. Then next time we will be reading the Tower of Nero, and it'll also be December nineteenth, which is. Percy Jackson D-Day if you are staying up until 3 a.m. like me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my god. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.